0: Well, welcome to Face to Face, and we have a very special guest with us today, uh, filmmaker uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, the director of uh, The Look uh, of Silence, coming up at TIFF uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, more importantly, uh, we're here to chat about uh, some of the thinking and some of the uh, experiences that Joshua had while making The Act of Killing, an Oscar-nominated film uh, just this past year. His first film, The uh, the Entire History of the Louisiana Purchase, won a Gold Hugo Award. He's got a PhD in filmmaking and, as I just mentioned, uh, Oscar-nominated film The Act of Killing, which, Joshua, um, before we get rolling, first, thank you so much for joining us today from, uh, I guess, from London, is that right?
1: No, Copenhagen,
0: Denmark. Copenhagen, Denmark. Excellent. So uh, on a little bit of a different timescale than us right now, it's 11.05 a.m. here in Toronto. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's my real pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So, so, Joshua, I've seen the film three times now. I saw the, I guess, the original release twice. I've seen the director's cut. And I think um, to say it's disturbing and beautiful and and beautiful, and, uh, uh, Paradoxical and contradictory—I mean—is is a major understatement. What What are your thoughts today about the film that might be different from from what they were a few years ago? Well,
1: there's the film has grown as audiences around the world have seen it. First of all, thank you for your very kind words about it. Oh, you're welcome. For me, for me the film um, has perhaps one of the things that's made the film significant in a way that I couldn't have anticipated when we first released the film or when we first premiered the film at TIFF in 2012 is the impact that it's had inside Indonesia. It's oh. opened space for ordinary Indonesians to discuss really for the first time without fear, the genocide upon which all of contemporary Indonesia has been built. And that um, in turn has helped provoke a public debate about the role of thugs and paramilitaries in Indonesian politics the the use of the corruption in Indonesian politics, the use of gangsters in politics so it's been it's been that that tr- space has opened not entirely because of the film but the film has surely helped catalyze that and that of course makes the film meaningful in a way that it was not yet when it first came to Toronto. I think also the film has come to me come for me to become a kind of you spoke of it being both terrifying and beautiful, a kind of fever dream more than a mm. a documentary, a fever dream about what happens when we build our normality on terror and lies and how we all lie to ourselves, tell stories to justify our actions.
0: Can Can we come back to that sort of... Beautiful uh, aspect of the film. I mean, it's it really is stunning. I mean, some of the shots, the opening shot of the of the, I guess it's a seafood restaurant, the fish and the background and the mist and the dancers. I mean, the colors. It's just so vibrant and, and deeply unsettling. Actually, on the second and third viewing, um, because at at first viewing, I just there was no expectations really. I didn't know what was coming next. So I'd love yeah. to get back to that in a second. But you you mentioned in an article that you wrote a while ago that that uh, for ordinary people, you talked about it representing, um, what's the quote here, an about-face for the government, Uh, who had maintained the killings at this point, were sort of heroic and glorious. So, Joshua, are you a guy, I mean, I don't know you at all, but it seems to me you're a guy who believes in change, who believes in change of heart, who believes in things like reconciliation and forgiveness and so on. Are are you that guy, or would you say that a film like this has um, um, sort of driven you deeper into a sense of darkness and cynicism?
1: think I'm not a cynic at all. I think that I'm not despairing. I think we have no right to be despondent, no matter how terrible things are. It is capitulation and therefore complicity to be despondent. Um, and, and yet you cannot make a film that's as dark as the act of killing and not have a bleak and pessimistic view and somehow at the same time and in absolute tension with that you would never make such a film if you did not live for and by a kind of optimism, a hope that by doing this you might make a difference, you might open a space. I think that that somehow resonates with the question of what art is all about. Documentary is in this kind of weird place between journalism and art and I think that journalism and art are while there may be overlaps or somehow different in the sense that journalism is about uh, presenting new information in a context where people can think about how to use that information, ideally for the public good. And art, maybe by contrast, is about forcing or seducing people to confront Painful, mysterious, difficult aspects of who we are, what our world is, that we probably already know, but are too uh, afraid, usually, to actually contemplate deeply. And in that sense, art is not about an encounter with the new, but a kind of new encounter with the familiar. And in that sense, art art is a little bit like the child in the emperor's new clothes, who comes along and points at something that everybody knows but is too afraid to talk about but, and it opens a space for everybody to finally address that problem. And in in, in that sense, art can catalyze social change, but is not the same as activism.
0: Errol Errol Morris said in in an article that he was an executive producer on the film, uh, for my listeners uh, who also directed The Fog of War and a a few other brilliant films along the way, said that, you know, documentaries about reinventing the form, and, and you did that with this film, uh, how? How
1: so? I don't know whether I really invented, I reinvented the form. I, I think what what I did in making the act of killing was to do what every filmmaker ought to do, which is to address the most urgent questions that she confronts or he confronts while, while, while when when starting to make a film. In this case. I started out by trying to make a film with survivors about their fear, what it's like for them to live with the perpetrators of atrocities against them, all around them, and still in positions of power. And consequently, what it's like for those survivors to live with the fear that this could happen to them again at any time. And when we started to do that, the Indonesian army started to warn the survivors that they ought not participate in the film, that they better not participate in the film. The survivors then suggested I film the perpetrators, hoping that I might find out the details about how their relatives had been killed. And when I did that, I found, to my horror at first, that every perpetrator was not only willing to talk, but immediately boastful, eager to take me to the places where they killed, launched into spontaneous demonstrations of how they killed uh, showing uh, bringing along props to use as uh, you know weapon weapons, weapons to use as props, complaining if they hadn't thought to do that. and And I was confronted with this uh, awful question of why are these men boasting? Obviously, it was because they were still in power. Obviously it was because they enjoyed impunity. But who are they trying to convince? They were boasting they were performing but performance is always intended for an audience. And the question was, who is their imagined audience? How do they want to be seen by me, by their grandchildren in front of whom they would also boast, by the audience of my film? And how do they really see themselves? And these were the most important questions I felt to understanding how this whole regime of killers had been managed to had had managed to sustain itself over so many decades, and that was an urgent contemporary question. It's about why this, why the survivor, the nature of the oppression that the survivors still face, and it was my responsibility to answer that question. And in trying to answer that question, I realized there's no better way of trying to understand how these men want to be seen, and how maybe they really see themselves than to let them dramatize what they've done in whatever ways they wish. And show it to themselves. Look at the material and respond to it. And that simple gambit, which was really an attempt to answer the most important question, is what maybe made the act of killing a formally innovative documentary.
0: At what you know, there's. uh, I got to tell you, uh, Joshua. I. I need about a six and a half inter- hour interview with you. I just, <laughs> the, the amount of questions this has raised for me, uh, my, my history is, is uh, I work in international development and Cambodia is a huge uh, factor for me and, and some of my reading and so on. And, and I know you're familiar with Rithy Pan's work and S21 and all that, uh, but I just it, it just goes so deep for me. But one of the things I find so disturbing about, the film is I guess Anwar in a way. Uh, Adi of course is pretty disturbing in his own right but you know one of the the the, if I can dare say my fate one of my favorite lines in the film and there's so many of these absurd lines but Anwar says something to the effect of I always wore jeans to massacres. Mm-hmm. That's right. He does. Exactly. That's what he says. <laughs> and, and, of course, anyone who's seen the film will see these almost ridiculous costumes that he wears and, and, and uh, that Herman is wearing as well. And you- to me is just this lack of recognition. And yet, and yet, there seems to be moments you know, where Anwar and a few others offer up some facial expressions and you sort of, if you can even do this, I mean, can you be digitally intuitive? As I watch Anwar, I think okay, maybe, just maybe there's some remorse there. Maybe he's actually sorry. I just uh, I, I, yeah, profoundly disturbing.
1: Well, I think I think the act of killing is a film about a man who doesn't believe his own words. One reason there's a longer version of the film that, that you... That you've said you've seen the it came out in the U.S. and very soon on on iTunes and Netflix in Canada as as and it's already out on DVD in Canada but it's the director's cut but it really is the unabridged version of the film it's the first version we completed and apart from Toronto was the main festival version of the film hmm. um, the the reason there's a longer version is because we just felt it was important to give the viewer time to perceive Anwar's doubt to perceive right. the fe- these moments in his, issue, these moments where we, the facade is cracking, where he's, he's, you know, cinema is actually not a great medium for words and particularly, but it is a great medium for people who don't believe their words and are giving any indication of that on their face. And I think you can see that Anwar knows he's, he's lying. There's moments in the film where I there's a moment in, in the longer version of the film in the director's cut where he's watching one of his cowboy scenes that they've created, a mm-hmm. Western scene. And it's an absurd scene with elephants and Herman, his uh, sort of his sidekick, gangster protege in drag. And I ask Anwar, Anwar, do you think your, your victims' families will be able right. to enjoy this film? And Anwar's face sort of drops. He falls. He knows in that moment, oh no, of course not. And it really what he's saying, realizing is, oh no, of course this is awful. And my effort to sort of uh, to, to 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 make it up to look beautiful, the effort to make a beautiful family movie, as he says, actually at one point in that scene about mass murder, is is going to doom to fail. And in that moment, he says. He, he obviously shows that he knows it was wrong and that the film will never be a success as a, the, in, in the sense that he'll never be able to, 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 to make what he did beautiful. And then he says, sure, of course they can. Enjoy of course it. they will. Of course they can enjoy it. But we can see that he knows it's a lie. And and that that is the crack that is the sign that he knows what he did was wrong. And I think every perpetrator I met knows what they did was wrong, and what they've all they've all used storytelling and the victor's history to do is to is to. Per- to, to protect themselves from feeling remorse so they know what they've done is wrong but they avoid feeling remorse by lying to
0: themselves. Do you think there's a sense and, and you know Anwar starts out the film I think him and herman are talking and he says something to the effect of we have to show uh, that this is the history so that you know in the future people will remember and uh, I'm just wondering, you know, the film obviously is about so many more things than just genocide and 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 history, but it's it's about about a memory and memory and the eradication of it and so on. Um, I, I I sort of felt at that point that I was almost listening to Robert McNamara in A Fog of War, Errol Morris's film, where it seemed by the end of the film there was a sense of, holy smokes, I was a part of all this. Um, I I need to. Not, I can no longer absolve myself of this responsibility that I have not only to myself, but to others and so on. Is Was there a similar kind of conviction there, do you think?
1: I think it's a very important moment in the film at the start where, when Anwar says we have to show the future generations what we've done. It's very important because... And it's echoed by many perpetrators in the film, including on this talk show they produce.
0: Oh, which is just uh-huh. remarkably unsettling. I don't, What what I found really difficult about your film, Joshua, is I thought I was a pretty bright guy and had quite a vocabulary. I'm realizing I don't, because there's, there's so few words to sort of describe the actual experience.
1: <laughs> I, you know, but the thing, I think, the, coming back to the point, yes. I think people who, I think that, the point is the perpetrators have remained in power. And when they die, they don't die as criminals. They, they die with full state, a full state burial or at least a very celebratory obituary in the local newspaper because they're seen as heroes, either locally or nationally. And everyone who participated in the killing, particularly the executioners who killed with their own hands and are traumatized to some extent by the awful things they saw and did, They all know it was wrong. And so this kind of rhetoric, we have to show this history to the future generation. This is somehow a way of insisting upon the lie to which they cling so that they can live with themselves, that they are heroes. And by the end of the film, of course, Anwar has a physical experience of the realization that he is not.
0: What was your? Were you filming that scene? I I, I read somewhere that you filmed about fifty percent of uh, of the movie. Were you there for that scene? I was I was
1: always there for oh, the whole. Okay. Movie. I was I was always there, but I wasn't always the person holding the camera. Actually, that scene, my wonderful cinematographer Carlos Arango de Montes, Colombian cinematographer, was standing by my side. But interestingly, I had given him. A a simple direction, you know, that was the second... The film starts with Anwar taking me to a rooftop where he shows how he killed with wire and then proceeds to dance the cha-cha-cha. I
0: know, yes, yes. It
1: ends with him returning to that same rooftop, showing, explaining again how he garroted people. And it was the second time that I returned to the scene of the crime, and it was the second time that I'd been to the scene of the time, the first crime, the first time that I returned there, and when we went back, um, i I instructed Carlos that we must stay against the wall and because the the space that that terrace belongs to the dead, and to walk out on the terrace is to walk in the space of the dead. I talked to actually. Cambodian filmmaker, you mentioned Rithi Pan about filming in political, pri- political prison in, in Phnom Penh and having the same instinct to stay back and keep the camera wide. Interesting. So we, we did that. And um, as somehow, as, as Anwar, Anwar says, I know what I did was wrong, explains what happened there yet again. And then says, I know what I did was wrong, but I had to do it. Right beginning to repeat the lie. And then it's as though he literally starts choking on the lie and begins this horrific retching. And it's as though he's trying to vomit up the ghosts that haunt him. In that moment, I wanted to go up to him as a man I now cared for deeply after five years of working with him, despite what he's done, and to put my arm on him and say, it's okay, which is what we... Uh, north americans do when we see distress boundless and and probably misguided optimism (laughs) i I wanted to do that and then i realized oh no of course this is what it looks like when it's really not okay in that moment i've also somehow realized i cannot film with this man anymore he has gone as far as he can go he's given this movie everything he can give and we it is time to end and that was the very last time I filmed him five years after that first shoot on the roof where he danced which incidentally where he showed how he killed which incidentally was the very first day that I had met him
0: wow there's just such a sense of pride and arrogance and hubris that's, that surrounds all of this. I think in that, that first scene, he talks about when they first started killing these supposed communists, they beat them to death, and there was so much blood that it just smelled awful. And so I came up with a way better way of killing people. And and then there's a pause, and he, I think he says to you, Joshua, can I show you?
1: He says, I need to, we need to, I'll show you. And then he says, we need to reenact this properly. Properly, that's right. Yeah. And the other thing that is, but the other thing that happens in that first scene after he shows me how he killed with wire, he stands there with the wire. There's a cut, a little time cut. He stands there with the wire around his own neck now, because immediately after showing me how he killed, he said, Now I must show you how the victims looked when they died. So from the very beginning of the process, he had this need to play the victim and show what the victims went through. But then he says, And I to forget what I've done. I've been drinking, going out dancing, to be, so that I wouldn't go crazy. And then he says, look, I'm a good dancer, and starts dancing the cha-cha-cha. And that was, you know, the unique moment there. What's, what's new for the viewer is, of course, a perpetrator boasting and reenacting what he did with apparent pride. But for me, Anwar was the 41st perpetrator I had filmed at that point. Yes. And he was, and that was the first day I'd met him. It wasn't new that he was showing me how he killed. The dancing was surreal and grotesque, but I'd filmed other surreal and grotesque moments with perpetrators, a few of which will appear in the, in the look of silence. But the, the thing that was new was that he acknowledged his pain, that he acknowledged right. that when he was dancing, he was doing so to banish a pain, that he was dancing with a stone in his shoe. And that crack, made me realize in sort of one fell swoop that perhaps the boasting that all these men had been doing was not really a sign that they were proud of what they'd done at all, but actually the opposite, a sign that they know what they've done is wrong and are desperately trying to convince themselves otherwise and are also indulging in the vanity that comes with power.
0: Do you think, you know, I I, want to... So you you interviewed 41 perpetrators. I mean, that's... that's, uh, a huge amount of uh, perspective I would think that you probably gained. But I'm wondering, were there any kind of commonalities, were there similarities between these killers um, that allowed them to sleep at night, that allowed them to, you know, was it, was it dancing? Was it marijuana? Was it drinking? Uh, and so on.
1: It wasn't, it wasn't so cl- clearly one particular, there wasn't, there wasn't one particular means of escape, but I think there were a few commonalities. First was a kind of exorbitant selfishness. Hmm that one has to have in order to be able to do what they did. You know, they weren't under, they weren't killing under the threat that if they didn't participate, they would be themselves killed. They were killing by choice. They were killing for reward, either money or political power or promotion. Um, and all of them, i but I think all of them knew what they did was wrong. A lot of them, and all of them had different, All of them clung to the official history, celebrating what they'd done, with the exception of one character in the act of killing, Adi, who comes into the film and says, the other executioner in Anwar's death squad and Anwar's very good friend comes into the film and says the official history is a lie. Right. Basically, everybody else clung to it for dear life because they couldn't live with themselves otherwise. And then others, some would cling to religion, some would... Uh, There was another character who's in in fact, appears in The Look of Silence, who wrote an illustrated memoir about the killing um, in which he created these graphic illustrations showing that he knew what he did was wrong, essentially, or at least trying and maybe trying to sort of tame the horror of it by replacing the awful memories with these drawings, just as Anwar does with his fiction or maybe attempt just as Anwar attempts through his fiction reenactments. But the other thing um, that he does, this is perpetrator, is he narrates his memoir mm. from the fir- in the first person from the perspective of the ghosts of the people that he killed. So it's a victim who he's killed, watching the writer, the author, the killer, going about killing the next person. Right. And this 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 book actually ended with it maybe with a quote which is so telling about how i think all the perpetrators coped with what they did this this memoir ends with a quote from napoleon where he says napoleon bonaparte saying something and i only know this quote from indonesian so i may be getting it wrong as one would through a game of telephone but something along the lines that my mind is like a chest of drawers and every And the key is to always know where to to keep the contents of every chest separate and never to let them mix and to always know where you keep the key to each drawer. And at night before you want to sleep, lock all the drawers and go to sleep. Wow. And I think somehow that memoir and Anwar's attempt to make these fiction scenes and his living in fantasy, which he did both at the so- at the time of the killings and today through the making of the act of killing, these were like, these were their chests of drawers.
0: J- Joshua, are you able to do that? Can you lock those drawers? I, ca- I can't.
1: I can't. And I don't think they can either. I mean, right. I think that the excess, those drawers are not locked. That's the drama yeah. of the right. act of killing. and. And the grotesque drawings in this memoir are the, is the over the excess spilling out, and while making the act of killing, there's one scene in the director's cut, which for me is the hardest scene in the film. It's the scene where Anwar butchers the teddy bear. It starts as oh, a game, yeah. And it's, it's it's but it's part of this descent into sort of hell that is Anwar's downward spiral before the end. It's a film noir stylized film noir scene. It's very surreal, very nightmarish, but but absolutely fake. I mean, he's just cutting up a teddy bear. But as I filmed that scene, Anwar, I was behind the camera shooting that scene and I heard Anwar's microphone rubbing and I had to call cut to adjust it. While I did that, Anwar said to me, Josh, you're crying. Hmm. And I didn't even realize that I was crying and that never happened to me before. I don't think since that I was crying without knowing it. And I checked and said, so I am. And Anwar, and I said, and Anwar said, what should we do about it? And I said, well, we should continue. I remember going home from that evening, that, that day shooting, that evening feeling very, very tainted and very, almost, almost, yeah, almost blo- contaminated, tainted right, by what right, I was right. part of making this film. And that, that was the beginning of eight months of really difficult nightmares and insomnia. So
0: I cannot close the drawers. Um, it seems to me that, you know, you talked briefly about Adi, uh, yeah, Anwar's a partner and friend and so on. He does seem to be able to compartmentalize this in a way. I mean, at one point he says, you know, I don't feel guilty at all. We did this. Uh, you know, it's no different than Bush and, and Iraq. And, you know, and he starts trying to equivocate, frankly, uh, from a moral perspective, and to, to absolve himself of his own responsibility. And yet, later, when you juxtapose him narrating his, what appears to be his guilt, while he's walking through an Indonesian mall, shopping with his family he does seem to say that it's all about you know more what does he say morality is relative and 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 we need to come up with a perspective that we can believe
1: yeah he says killing is the worst thing you can do but if you're paid well enough for it do it (laughs) just make up an excuse so that you can live with yourself
0: afterwards so there's a sense (laughs) in which joshua you would sense you would say adi's even though he's, you know, rhetorically brilliant and so on, and he's woven this real delightful web, you would say he's he's still very much haunted.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? I think that, of course, he wouldn't be needing to justify what he's done in that way if he wasn't ha- haunted. He's, in fact, actually brave enough maybe even to acknowledge that he's haunted, and yet he also denies having nightmares. Right. Um, I think that maybe Adi has, in part, coped by acknowledging what he's done was wrong, speaking out against the the propaganda of the regime, making himself feel as though he's a better man maybe than he is. Uh, And then when he sees the potential of the film to undermine the government's version of the events, he actually warns everybody to stop making the film. He experiences, I suppose, cold feet, a fear that this could undermine their power and indeed it has to some extent. He, I, I think, though, that Anwar, I mean, Adi also has, in a way, survived by killing off his own conscience. And that is to say he's killed off a part of his own humanity. It might be harder to live as Anwar than it is as Adi, but I suppose as awful a choice as it would be, and I would rather perhaps not be alive at all than to be either of them, I'd rather be Anwar than Adi.
0: You, you mentioned something earlier about putting your, putting your arm around Anwar at the, uh, the final scene, the rooftop scene, and, and kind of you know commiserating with him on a more human level that you'd been hanging out with him for five years. I guess my question is, did you ever just hang out with these men, and I guess in some cases women, and shared a few drinks and, and, and lunch and dinner in and, and, and a setting that was sort of not the film, and, 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 and experienced them in a way that you might, another friend back at home, I guess what I'm trying to get to, Joshua, yeah. is, is the—I <laughs> the, guess the, those 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 links in the chain. You know how 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 potentially uh, how 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 um, are we all standing on this edge? Potentially, you know. You talk about this maybe happening again in Indonesia, and I think maybe it can happen again in Rwanda and Cambodia. But w- what about here?
1: I mean, I think that that we are all. Ex- If we grew up in Anwar's family in 1965 Indonesia, we don't know how we would... If we grew up in 1950s Indonesia in Anwar's family, we don't know whether we would do what Anwar did in 1965. But what we do know is that we're all extremely fortunate never to have to find out. Right. The film shows that the killers are human, which is a fact. And... It doesn't show that every human is capable of this that doesn't follow that's a logical error but it shows that this that every killer is human and presumably there's human beings among us at all, all the time who could kill and we might be them ourselves and there's a but the positive the hopeful aspect of all killers being Human is that perhaps we can then build societies together where we learn and become uh, to care for each other more, to empathize with each other more, so that the kind of things that were so easy for Anwar to do at the time, but became more and more burdensome as he grew older, the kind of killing, torture, those kind of things become less and less easy to imagine. My country, the United States, slipped into a policy of systematic torture over several years, and still has had no real reconciliation with that. Mm-hmm. That didn't seem possible five years earlier. That uh, We are always on an edge. We must always be vigilant. And I think the strategy of vigilance is empathy.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask you just a couple more questions before we close off? Of course. I would love to know what your thoughts are on the recent uh, convictions of Keo Sampan and and Chi in uh, In Cambodia I'm sure you're aware of it but just a couple days ago they were you know at what is it 83 and 85 something I've been following very closely for the last few years in fact I was able to sit in one of the uh, trials uh, for a couple of hours a a couple years ago does that give you some sense of hope I mean uh, with respect towards uh, Indonesian reconciliation and and the future
1: well the problem is this the problem is that uh, in Cambodia the perpetrators were maybe not completely, but largely, and in a way that has not happened in Indonesia, been removed from power. The, the, I I'm, I'm hope, of course, the act of killing is a warning of the horrific consequences of unfettered impunity. And so it is hopeful when there is justice. Um, at least it means that the kind of situation you see in Indonesia And in the act of killing, that kind of descent into a total moral vacuum should face some resistance Mm -hmm. in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Indonesia has had a hopeful election result in July, where a first president who is not an elite, an oligarch who became extremely wealthy through plundering the nation's wealth and through corruption, or an outright war criminal has been elected. That said, he chose as his vice presidential candidate the as his running mate he chose the vice president who's in the act of killing who says we need our gangsters so that we can beat people up and get things done Mm -hmm. so there's and he's surrounded by war criminals and murderers in terms of advisors and supporters so we there's an awful long way to go yeah and an before we're in a situation where the perpetrators could ever face trial. And the fact that they face trial in Cambodia is because they were removed from power. The reason there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, uh, in South Africa is because the apartheid regime fell. The reason why Nazis were hunted down in South America is because they lost and ran away. In Indonesia, as I said earlier, when they die, they're treated to state, state funerals.
0: Right. Um, so we'll wrap it up here with this. I think uh, I'd love to continue chatting with you, but but sounds like you—I uh, have two degrees in philosophy. Sounds like you gave up on a, a degree, a BA in physics and philosophy at one point, and and I can't help but thinking you—you've become this digital thinker, this digital philosopher. Uh, why? Why did you let go of philosophy? Why? Why did you drop out?
1: Um That's a really good question.
0: I mean, I guess what I'm saying, Joshua, is I don't think you have.
1: (laughs) I don't think I don't I don't. I'm still passionately interested in philosophy. I see my work as a kind of kind of practical philosophy. I see my filmmaking as an exploration on the nature of existence Mm. and the nature of which are the questions that most fascinate me. An exploration to the profound mystery of being that we exist at all. I think I, I know why I left physics because physics was always constrained to not deal with the metaphysical, which were the questions that really fascinated me. Why are we here? Why do we exist at all? Why was there a big bang? Yes, yes. Physics can't, can't ever go beyond that horizon. They can just look at the nature of the reality that is unfolded. But I, I, I see my work as philosophy in in, in in images and sound, and I see motion pictures you know, as infinitely at least the, the images that I try to make as much more intelligent and dense than I am, and therefore the filmmaking process is a process of excavation of the layers of meaning in the images and the and the creation of works that are hopefully far more dense than anything I could ever put into words.
0: Thanks for joining us uh, today, Joshua. Your your new film, The Look of uh, Silence, is going to be uh, playing in Venice in a couple of uh, days, is it? Or a couple couple weeks? In, on the 20, in the, just to the end of August. And then coming into uh, uh, Toronto at TIFF. Uh, uh, look forward to maybe shaking your hand if you're around. I will certainly try to track you down after one of, uh, of your showings. Thanks again for, for taking the time. I really, truly appreciate it. And, and what a brilliant uh, uh, film you've made here. I look forward to The Look of Silence. And um, yeah, all the best. Thanks.
1: An absolute pleasure to talk to you.